Thank you all for being here tonight. I'm going to start with saying my thank yous. I want to thank Amy Brown, who's here helping us record the event. She's with Community Radio WERU, um, which co-produces Reproductive Left. I also want to thank Joanne Daphne, who came early to help us with our sound, um, as well as Ruth Lambden, who helped, came early to help us set up. I have to, of course, thank the Advocacy Committee and our Board of Directors who helped um, make the chocolates for the event tonight, and our intern, Amelia Foreman-Styles, who will be helping record some of the audio when we um, open it up for the questions and answers. Of course, I also want to thank Allison and Hannah for coming down from Fredericton, New Brunswick today um, and being here for Reproductive Lift. And once again, thanking all of you for being here for the show um, tonight. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Reproductive Lift, it is once again produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. And on the show, we provide frank, honest, and accurate information on sexual and reproductive health from local Maine experts, although today our experts are from New Brunswick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm the host, Abby Stroh, and on each episode, we tackle a different topic that relates to sexual and reproductive health. So far, we've covered a wide range of topics including the choice to remain child-free, reproductive coercion, abortion stigma, and sex-positive feminism. Almost every show, but not quite every show, ends with the Ask Mabel segment. Sometimes our interviews run too long and we don't have time for it, but most shows end with Ask Mabel, which is the segment with nurse practitioner and co-founder Terry Marley DeRosier, where she answers our listeners' sexual and reproductive health questions. Uh, and if you want to listen to Reproductive Left, it airs the first Tuesday of the month on Community Radio WERU, which is 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at weru.org. And you can also found, find us on SoundCloud, so it's soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth. You can also subscribe on iTunes or on whatever podcast app you use. I have a Droid, so I can't use iTunes, and I use Pocket Casts, which is a super easy-to-use app. Um, so uh, Andrea mentioned this a little bit, but I'm going to say it again. So every year we recognize the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which was the landmark case that legalized abortion in the United States by hosting our event, Choice and Chocolate. Um, we've had numerous past... Uh, programs that I'm just going to name a couple. One, we had Peaches Bass here, who was part of the Jane Collective, which was a collective of women that provided illegal but safe abortions before abortion was legal in the United States. We had Nathan Stormer here, who is a professor at the University of Maine, who spoke about abortion rhetoric and the research that he does. We had Joanne Daphne here, who gave us the abortion history in, of Maine in um, in a musical and poetry format. And one year we had great, four brave women share their abortion, their own abortion stories with us. This year, in addition to celebrating Roe v. Wade, which um, happened on January 22nd, 1973, we will also be recognizing R versus Morgenthaler, which was the decision made by the Supreme Court of Canada on January 28th, 1988. And I just, I'm going to sidetrack from my notes for a second, because I just started learning more about Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, and we don't, well, he'll probably be brought up a bunch through our interview today, but I would recommend spending some time researching him, because he was one incredible man that did um, amazing advocate, advocacy work for women in Canada. Um... So before this case in 1988, anyone who wanted an abortion in Canada needed to obtain permission from three doctors. And since the 1988 ruling, there have been no criminal laws regulating abortion in Canada. And it is a violation of the Canada Health Act if a province, like New Brunswick, does not provide access to abortions. 
So tonight we're going to learn about access to abortion care in New Brunswick and how a group of reproductive justice advocate at activists opened an independent clinic in Fredericton less than a year after the previous clinic closed. So first I'm going to introduce you to our guests really quickly and then we'll allow them to, um, to give us more information about who they are and what they do. So um, actually let me just so first we have Hannah Gray, who is the secretary and the signing officer for Reproductive Justice New Brunswick, which I'll also be calling RJNB tonight. And she's also a full-time student, which I think is incredibly impressive. And Allison Webster is the treasurer of Reproductive Justice New Brunswick. She is also the vice president of Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, and she is a counselor and a consultant for clinic Five five four, <laughs> not five fifty four. <laughs> um, so first, I would love to just hear. First, we'll start with Hannah um, about how you got involved in reproductive justice, New Brunswick, and doing this advocacy work, and how you balance that with being a full time student. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess when I got involved, before I got involved, when I was twelve years old. My grandmother, who's also a Holocaust survivor, like Henry Morgenthaler, told me her abortion story um, because she was worried that I would stop forgetting how important it is to control my own body. Fast forward about 12 years from that, um, the more we found out that the Morgenthaler Clinic was closing. So the Morgenthaler Clinic provided 60% of the abortions in New Brunswick. Um, and the day we found out, uh, one of the kids that I mentor, we have a really great group of kids in Fredericton called the Fredericton Youth Feminists. Um, said to me, Hannah, we need to do something. I'm going to start a rally. I think we need to have a rally. I was devastated, so I went to sleep. But when I woke up, <laughs> she had started organizing the rally. <laughs> so one week later, and we had 700 people there. Uh, we're a very small and rural province, so that's a big deal. Very conservative province as well. Um, and from that moment forward, I think it wasn't really a choice for me. Um, those kids needed me in the room. Um, and I needed to be there. I needed to be part of making sure that I still controlled my own body. I don't think it's ever been a choice. I think that um, I always have the choice to leave that group. I always have the choice not to get up in the morning and go on, the, check the emails. I have a choice every single time I participate. But for me, it's part of who I am. Um, it's a part of the history of my family, and it's a part of myself. Um, I don't think that I would feel whole not doing it. Um, in terms of balancing it, it is has been for the past two years now um, a part of my life. It's a daily part of my life. I probably spend more time on it than school. I probably spend as much money on it as school. <laughs> um, but I just think that it makes me a better person. It makes me a better mentor. It makes me a better sister and daughter. Um, it makes me a better person to myself. And so when we talk about a balancing act, it's unconscious, it's second nature, because I haven't lived any other way for probably about two years now, so. Wow. And so also I want to ask you, Allison, um, how did you start to get involved in reproductive justice and access to abortion care, and what continues to motivate you to stay involved, because it's exhausting work. It, it can be exhausting, um, but I uh, worked at the Morgenthaler Clinic, which um, was in operation um, in New Brunswick since the late 80s. I worked there for five years uh, as support staff. So when um, we got the news that the clinic was gonna be um, closing after Dr. Morgenthaler died and due to continued lack of funding, it kind of like Hannah said, in some ways it, it wasn't an option to not stay involved because um, it was so devastating for me to think about my community being without the clinic. And um, so being, being an employee, we, we you know, found out about a month before the public announcement of the closure. So um, had a little bit of time to sort of grieve and process. And it, it just wasn't an option to go quietly. Like we just, it wasn't. So um, I'm very proud to be one of the founding members of what is now RJMB, 
and really we just there was like a group of us it was like a snowy march day and we just met in a coffee shop and there's probably about 20 um you know people from different walks of life law professors um other community activists and we just we just had to mobilize we, we didn't have a choice so um since that day um and i mean before then like we were still doing some um activism and like i became involved with the abortion rights coalition of canada um not too long after i started at the morgan Teller clinic so um doing some activism with that group but um really just the need um and the the fear that our community would be without this really necessary um health service was just enough to drive us and um and become the group that is now our jmb um you were saying that the closure of the clinic is what led to starting this group um from my research the morgan Teller clinics are throughout new brunswick so there's one in toronto ottawa st john's if i'm right and the clinic in Fredericton is the one that closed. Can you talk a little bit about why that closed after um, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler passed away? Yeah, so the um, the clinics, there's uh, clinics in that are still Morgenthaler clinics in Ottawa and Toronto. Um, the, the clinic in St. John's is actually sort of run separately, but they still kept um, the Morgenthaler name sort of in tribute to Dr. Morgenthaler. Um, but in Ontario, which, so instead of states in Canada, we have provinces. So um, Ontario is where the Toronto and Ottawa clinics are. Um, the provincial government pays for services at those clinics. So those clinics are funded by the provincial governments. Whereas in New Brunswick, um, our government, you know, since the 80s has refused to fund abortions in a clinic setting. So the clinics, um, not only are Ottawa and Toronto uh, very like large urban centers, um, and so they do procedures like every day of the week basically, um, but the provincial government also pays for procedures there, um, which is different from New Brunswick. So patients have to pay out of their own pocket. And New Brunswick is a fairly economically depressed um, province. So, you know, $700 for a procedure is just out of reach for so many people. Did you want to add? No, I okay. So, um, I did want to just talk a little bit about what the what access in New Brunswick looks like. So, I looked it up a little bit, and like you were just saying, only. Um, the, they're only paid for if they're done if abortions are done in a hospital setting, um, and you can only get the abortion funded if you have a New Brunswick or a Prince Edward Island health card. That's right. Um, and then additionally, there's generally two appointments that people need to have. Yeah. So New Brunswick is a very big province. It's one of our challenges. And we're a bilingual province, and so the northern part generally speaks French, and the southern part generally is English. Most people in the north are generally bilingual, but not really to talk about reproductive health care. Um, and we also have a pretty low health literacy rate. We know that most people in New Brunswick, um, a large portion aren't literate in general, and most people in New Brunswick don't understand health very well. Um, so to get an abortion, you have to go to one of two hospitals. Last year, when the clinic closed, and there was just a, such an uproar across the country, the provincial government said, okay, we're going to increase access. And they had to pick one, because there's only access in French hospitals, they had to pick one English-speaking hospital to provide access, and they put it five minutes away from the other French-speaking hospital. And so people are still driving four or five hours um, to get to one of these clinics. They do still require two appointments. Um, the first one is supposed to be for counseling, what they call counseling, and an ultrasound. When we asked, and then the next appointment is for the procedure. And when we asked um, the health authority why they, they why they did this, the person in charge of clinical services looked at me and said, "Because women need to think about what they're doing before they go." And so this this thing that's destructive in Texas of all places is actually like very persistent um, in our culture, where they just think that these people can't make their own decisions. Um, if you live close enough, evidently you don't need, far away enough, apparently you don't need that time. So people who are traveling from far away 
Um, sometimes don't have to go twice. Um, but <laughs> they must be smarter. I don't know. <laughs> um, also, the abortions are only performed up to 11 weeks after conception. And often there's a four-week waiting period. So, Or not a waiting period, but a wait list because it's, a, it's so booked. So what are... Um, people's options if they're further than 11 weeks? Um, the only option is to pay to go to a clinic. Um, there's nothing else that they can do. Um, there are clinics in, like, out of province. Mm -hmm. So um, up until recently, um, well, and actually still ongoing, um, patients can travel to Quebec, um, but from, like, where we live in Fredericton, um, it's a solid like six hour drive just to the border um, and because of the, the law that our uh, government has about not funding clinic procedures, um, if, they, if a patient goes to a hospital in Quebec, they can get refunded their money, but if they go to a clinic in Quebec, they're just out of pocket. So depending on um, the, their gestation and which, um, which place they choose to go, they can either try to get some of the money back or just not get the money back. Um, that said, we do have a clinic in Fredericton that goes far, farther along. So the cutoff date that they have in the hospitals is really arbitrary. There's nothing medical about that date. There's no medical reason for it. And so we've reopened, there, there's a new clinic in Fredericton now that does go farther along um, because they go the first trimester because that's medically sound. That's how they make their decisions. <laughs> that's reasonable. Um, so the clinic, the Morgan Teller Clinic closed in July of 2014. I think the announcement was in April or March. Um, and less than a year later, so January of 2015, you had the funds together and had clinic 554, five, five, <laughs> I'm going to mess that up all night, um, started. You ha how did you raise money so quickly and get that going? Um, probably just a really healthy amount of fear. Um, I think. So we were having an event called Thanks Henry, which is like an, um, an event to memorialize Henry a year after his death and to talk about all that we had lost since he died and everything that he brought to Canada. Um, and at that event, someone said, like, we need this clinic, which we do. Um, in the meantime, actually, we were sending people here. Um, so people were driving here. And we were so blessed to send them here. Um, and I can't tell you how great it was. It was still terrifying when you think of the weather in the winter. Uh, people without passports, and the idea of going through the border and trying to explain to people where you're going. Um, so we um, we had this idea, and we kind of threw it around, and how would we do this? Um, and we decided we were going to crowdfund it. Um, the same way someone, I think the same week, did like a bowl of mac and cheese, we were doing an abortion clinic. <laughs> um, so uh, we put the crowdfunder up, um, and it went viral. We got, I think in three days, we got $80,000 from people across Canada. The average donation was around 50 bucks. Um, we had over about 1,500 to 200 people contribute on there. Um, the Fredericton New Feminist organized a gala event, so they organized a fundraiser, um, mostly a 17-year-old, organized a fundraiser um, and brought in, I think, about $4,000. Um, and it was just, it, there, was, there was not a lot of exchange of services. It was genuine people having fear. It was around the same time that that movie came out. Um, we bought a zoo, so like our little joke was, we were gonna we bought an abortion clinic. Um, and and to be fair, we helped buy an abortion clinic um, because the our amazing doctor um, put his own life out west on hold and um, moved to our province and used his own credit. Um, and put his name on the line to secure the mortgage of the building. Um, so our JMB was thrilled to be able to help our doctor to purchase the building and, and uh, get clinic abortions going again in the province. And the difference now is that our clinic also is a medical is a family practice, and so we're like marginally more sustainable because we are able to bring in revenue. Um, through having family practice on days that are, we're not providing abortions. I just wanted to say quickly, so we were seeing um, 
women from New Brunswick for about six months and it was I work as a clinical assistant um, when, on days that we do abortion care and it was really actually I'm glad that they do not have to travel to Mabel's anymore but it was very it was a good experience to get to know some women and get to know Canadians a little better um, it did seem like the stereotype was true that everyone from Canada is nice but <laughs> our health minister is not <laughs> Um, and we did have a really powerful story once that a woman traveling down with her with a relative came to the border and the person with her didn't have their passport and they told them why they were coming and they let them through without a passport um, which I mean was incredible so so there were some good stories in there um, how when you first started the crowdsourcing, how long did you anticipate it taking to fundraise for this? We really had no idea. I mean, we we really didn't know what to expect, and we sort of were um, just flying by the seat of our pants, so to speak. Like, it was sort of just this idea that, you know, it's um, so crazy, it just might work. Like, we just sort of jumped in, you know, with both feet, and... Um, as soon as it went viral, it became clear that we were going to meet our target and not only meet it, but surpass it um, within a few days, uh, a few weeks, I guess. Um, but we just really didn't know what to expect. And I think we just, it was just sort of um, desperation and, um, you know, just thinking like, what do we have to lose? And so... Um, and we, you know, we had a, a vague timeline um, from our doctor, um, so we sort of, you know, we just, we just jumped in. We didn't really know what to expect. I always say the hardest part of feminist activism is organizing feminist activists. <laughs> so at the same time as doing this, we were also trying to figure out how we were going to do that and how we were going to have all this money. And so when she says flying by the seat of the pants, like really genuinely, um, and also at the same time the fact that a doctor was coming was secret because we were really worried about what would happen if the minister, like the health minister or anyone in the Department of Health found out that we were bringing in another abortion provider and the barriers that they could create. Um, and so we had code names for everything. I didn't get one and I'm still jealous. Um, <laughs> but we had code names, we had very secret emails and it was a very, um, it was a, it was very easy to see how people before us were would have had to feel because on top of all of the secrecy that comes with it, we know that the history of abortion in Canada and in the States has been built on a lot of violence. And we were very lucky to avoid that, but also understood the culture of fear, I think, better than I have ever before. I think we also felt um, like a real, especially like when this money started coming in, like we felt such a responsibility to and so much gratitude to, to people that, um, you know, sent anywhere we we got we got a letter like not even um you know not an email transfer or whatever but an actual letter with a five dollar bill in the envelope and with a note that said like i wish i could give more but you know what you guys are doing is so important and so we we you know yes we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants but we also felt this like huge responsibility to all these people that had entrusted us with this $125,000 that we ended up raising. So um, I don't I don't want to seem like that we were blasé about it at all. Like we definitely, we maybe weren't quite as organized when we started the crowdfund as we could have been, but we definitely had like a real sense of responsibility and that, you know, that, that we were just going to keep working until we, we met our goal. You mentioned earlier that New Brunswick is a pretty conservative province and it sounds like you had um, just a lot of support coming in through all of Canada. What was the response from your more local community? So our local community is kind of interesting because we have two things. Um, our clinic is actually located right next to the Right to Life. Um, they can see our parking lots in their house. They used to protest us every time they got a chance. Um, but what we what happened was in that atmosphere where we're getting protested on the street every day, where people are getting chased, you know, as they're walking into the clinic, they're getting chased. Um, we found out that all of these people who before could stay silent realized that they couldn't, and so all of a sudden, all of my classmates were also at these rallies with me, 
um, all of these teachers were the profs were joining RJ and B. People were talking about it. I think more than I could have imagined before because everybody knew that there was something on the line. In November of 2014, the Liberal Party promised to improve access to abortion in New Brunswick. <clears throat> have they kept this promise? <laughs> we both like each other a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the now um, Premier of our province had promised um, in his campaign to remove all barriers to access, which is a pretty lofty promise, um, and they just really haven't come close. Um, but, you know, they added the extra hospital in the same city that we already had a hospital. <laughs> um, and then sort of have just said, like, oh, we, we did what we said we were going to do. Um, so, you know, even though we had a change of government from conservative to liberal, um, you know, it's marginally improved, but um, they sort of still seem like they just don't want to don't wanna face it. It's kind of like, so we sent them a letter recently, and we got a letter back from the Minister of Health, Victor Boudreaux, um, shout out, and he said, um, he said, we identified all of the barriers, and then kind of said, and that's all. Um, we kind of, he said, you know, we, we identified them and we removed this one, and now that's it. Um, so we're very much still waiting, very disappointed. We recently had a party of, um, an anniversary of nothing in November. We celebrated the anniversary that repeal that didn't happen. Um, I was reading in your RJNB zine, which is awesome, by the way, that you um, love Clinic 554, um, but you are separate from it. I'd like to know more about why, um, as the Reproductive Justice New Brunswick, you think it's important that there is this clinic that provides abortion care instead of working to increase access to the hospital care? There's quite a few reasons. Um, it's best practice, and we know that. Um, in hospitals, the stories that we've heard from the past 40 years of abortion services in New Brunswick is that inevitably what happens, and the Department of Health has acknowledged this, in fact, it was one of them that told me this, is that you can start a clinic that's completely pro-choice and in a hospital, and you can staff a hospital with people who are pro-choice, and then someone goes on mat leave. And then that's a really good time for someone who's anti-choice to get in there. And so we've heard a lot of stories about people being forced to do things that they didn't want to, um, being forced to look at ultrasounds when they didn't want to. Um, the clinic, the other hospital in Moncton, not the new one, but the old one, actually has a blacklist policy that if you show up more than 15 minutes late, you're blacklisted from that part of the hospital forever. So you can't cancel on misappointments. Um, I have, with the youth that I've worked for, called to ask for abortion care. And they, um, they have lied to us over the phone about who can get abortion services. Um, they, not everyone who's there should be or wants to be there. Um, we, they always say that the clinic got protested and that's why they have to close it, but I'd much rather have the protester outside than touching my stomach. Yeah. That's a powerful statement. Um, clinic 554 is more than an abortion clinic, which you've said before that it's also a um, family practice mm -hmm. now. Can you just talk a little bit about the other services offered at the clinic? Sure. So, yeah, so it's a, a full family practice. So um, our doctor had to agree to take on, there's a huge wait list of people in New Brunswick waiting to get a family doctor. So um, to move to the province, he had to take, you know, seven to 800 people off the waiting list. Um, so he sees those patients. Um, in addition, um, he gives priority to members of the LGBT community. Um, so he does um, hormone therapy for trans patients and um, exams, all, all that um, stuff. So um, they really prioritize um, working with marginalized communities in our city. So uh, it's just become such a great part of our community. Um, different groups uh, use the space to have meetings and um, they, they've just become such an integral part of our community. So um, it's, not, it's not only about abortion care, but 
um, care for trans patients and other marginalized communities. And I mean, it's just, it's just a huge blessing. They said recently that about, and they, um, about a tenth, so about 70 of their patients are trans. Um, and they've appeared in documentaries about trans healthcare, which is also really quite behind compared to the rest of our country. Um, and what, one of the cool things that happened was all of these people who were waiting months and sometimes or years for hormone therapy got it all at the same time. Um, and he prioritized seeing them. So we were really lucky that um, he was able to come. And it's been beautiful watching um, what it's done to our community. And the clinic is now up and running successfully for a year. We actually announced it a year this week. So what is RJNV working on now and what are some of your major projects um, for the upcoming year? So we're still working on lobbying the government um, to get abortion services funded in the clinic. Um, that's a huge one because it's still an incredible barrier for so many people. Um, so, you know, abortion access is still one of the, the forefront of what we're working on. Um, but we're also working on reaching out to other um, activists in the province, working with um, New Brunswick families for midwives um, because in New Brunswick, uh, patients can't choose to have a midwife um, in their delivery process. Um, that's not a, a, that's another um, unfunded service in the province. Um, working with the youth feminists and <laughs> we do a lot of like skill sharing. So we do. Um, like one of the first time, for instance, I'm planning media training, and we're just inviting all of the grassroots organizations. Um, we really lend our support pretty far and wide. We are on an anti-austerity group. Um, I'm trying to think. We were trying to work with a group in PEI, so Prince Edward Island, the province next to us, um, recently uh, is about to launch their own lawsuit as well. Um, and so exploring those options, we're petitioning locally and federally. Um, we spoke out against conscientious objections. So in New Brunswick, in Canada, there's an ethical code that a doctor can refuse care that's against their religions or refuse to do care. So that would mean like refusing to provide an abortion, but you still have to refer them somewhere else. And our health minister made a statement that you could just refuse to treat someone if they were against your religion, um, referring to trans people. So saying that he didn't, he was not going to force any doctor to see a trans person, including in the emergency room. So we spoke out against that. Um, we organize a lot of panels <laughs> um, and things like that. So it's that kind of lobbying. All right. So I am now actually going to open it up for audience questions. Um, first, I just want to thank you again, both of you, for coming down, joining us for Choice and Chocolate and being on Reproductive Left. You've been amazing. And I just want to say that I feel so much solidarity and Mabel Wadsworth Center feels so much solidarity with both RJNB and Clinic 554. Um, just both of your missions and the um, patient-driven care that the clinic provides is central to our mission as well. So it's so good to know that we have you all just north of us advocating for people in New Brunswick. And we absolutely feel the same way about the Mabel Wadsworth Clinic, and it means so much, more than we can articulate um, the, the help and the service that you guys gave and continue to give to New Brunswick patients. I, it just really, we, we love you for it. <laughs> so I'm going to open it up for all of you. I do want to say we are going to try to record your question. So if you would prefer not to be recorded, that's fine. You still ask the question. But if it's OK for us to use your voice um, on the air, Amelia will be coming around to record your question. Um, and we will open it up. Um, I'm curious, how did you come up with the name, or what does the name 554 mean? Uh, 554 is our address. Um, <laughs> one time at 3 in the morning, 
we were writing the business plan. <laughs> I needed to come up with something good before the bank the next morning. Um, and before, when it was the Morgenthaler Clinic, it just said clinic and then the street address. So we just took clinic and the street address and didn't want to buy a new sign. <laughs> Hannah, what were some of the code names and what was the one that you coveted the most? <laughs> The social worker involved with the clinic got Lady G. Well, <laughs> originally it was Miss G, um, but I changed it, <laughs> and I liked it. Uh, we had Operation Vancouver uh, and Dr. X. You'll have to see it. There's a lot of minutes with Dr. X in it. It makes me jealous. <laughs> I'm just curious about access to medication abortion in New Brunswick in general and at your clinic in particular. So medical abortions aren't readily available in Canada yet. Um, it was just recently uh, sort of legalized through Health Canada, um, but it's not available yet. Um, and there's still a lot of red tape ongoing. Um, there's we're, we're not sure. There's um, sort of a lot of rumor and unanswered questions. Um, the other group that I organized with, the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, sent a really articulate and really well-written letter um, asking some specific questions about, so the drug um, that got legalized through Health Canada is going to be called Miso. And because that just rolls off the tongue, um, and the you know the doses and the um, the recommendations from Health Canada seem to be really um, burdensome and not necessarily the best practice at all. So um, we we never did get a response to our questions. Um, and I think part of it is that the government just doesn't quite have a plan yet. Um, but we're hoping that it, it's sort of rolling out within the next year. And it could be something um, that is going to help a lot of communities, New Brunswick, and also like um, we have some really northern um, you know, communities, rural communities. So we're hopeful that, you know, it will, um, it will improve access somewhat, um, but it's sort of unclear right now how that's gonna, how that's gonna work. I was also just gonna speak on the issue of medication. Birth control is really limited in New Brunswick um, because we're so conservative and because the doctors in the community are so conservative. Um, obviously, Clinic 554 prescribes birth control um, and <laughs> filled that gap in a really huge way. Um, but it was very common. You'd hear people call it. Um, one of the kids that I work with said that the doctor said no because um, she was not in a committed relationship. She should wait until she's in a committed relationship. Um, there's one doctor who is in the community who's very predominant. He's on the board of the health authority who will not, pres- so on the board of our hospitals, so will not prescribe birth control to unmarried women. Um, at all, um, says it's against his religion, does not do referrals. Um, those kind of barriers are very persistent, and a lot of the reasons that um, we're put this way, there's a huge weight loss for vasectomy. Um, there was someone in PEI, who was in a, which is again the province next to us, who did, used a medical abortion and went to the emergency room with concerns about how much she was bleeding and was sent home. Um, the doctor said, I don't know how to treat you, I'm not going to find out, you need to leave. Um, it became really public, and that publicity is what made it so that they can now access birth, uh, abortion, surgical abortions in New Brunswick. Or, yeah, but that's about where we're at. Uh, I have two questions. Yep. One is for a lot of people in very northern Maine and Arista County. Uh, Fredericton is actually a lot closer than Bangor. Yep. And I was wondering if you get patients from Maine, and if anybody in Arista County is listening, like what, what that process is. Um, and the other question is uh, not knowing a lot about the role of the federal government in Canada with regard to this issue. Um, is there any promise with your new prime minister, Mr. Trudeau, uh, in expanding these this access? So I'll speak to the first question first. Um, we do get some patients from Maine and New England. Um, and so the process is you can get all the information from our website, which is rjmb.org. And there's um, a 1-800 number that um, anyone can call to book an appointment. 
Um, the cost is $700 or $850, um, but that's Canadian dollars, so it's actually like a bargain for you guys now. <laughs> Um, and you're right, Fredericton's not too far, and everything is um, done like in one day. So um, if, as long as a patient has a driver, um, they wouldn't even have to stay overnight in Fredericton. But um, all that information is yeah available on our website, and we're we're happy to see patients from the states. Um, the other place that information is very available is on the clinic's website. So it's clinic554.ca. And, sorry, what was your second question? Trudeau. Trudeau. Aha. <laughs> Trudeau. Says he's pro and is very adamant about that. Uh, one of the first statements that the federal health minister said was that she, um, that the abortion access was patchy, but refuses to meet with us or to talk to us about it. Um, our local representative um, has never returned my emails since the election. So they said it's patchy and that's all. <laughs> We're waiting. They, we did get a flat-out refusal from the Minister of Health, though. Um, she just said it wasn't going to happen. But if she's listening, we'd like it to. <laughs> I had two as well. Um, one is about the legality or illegality for Canadians to import medicine from other nations or countries. And secondly... Your Minister of Health is appointed or voted in, and if so, are they at the discretion of the Prime Minister? How easy is it to get a new Minister of Health? So the Minister of Health is appointed. Um, he's appointed by the Premier of the province, so there's provincial politics and federal politics. Um, so our New Brunswick Health Minister is appointed by our provincial premier, and then the federal health minister is appointed by the prime minister. Um, so it's hard to get rid of him. <laughs> uh, we basically, it's not an elected position, so often um, the ministers are sort of cronies and friends and, you know, um, don't necessarily have much experience in health whatsoever. We do have a minister for the status of women. It's Mr. Brian Glant. Um, <laughs> and we had a meeting today with the, with like, the executive director of that branch. Um, I haven't heard how it went. Um, in terms of importing medication, as long as it's prescribed, I think it's fine. Um, ordering it off the internet, people do a lot. I can't speak to whether or not it's illegal. One of the challenges that we had when we didn't have a clinic and we were really sending most of our patients here was that follow-up blood work and things like that were really tricky because the, the Mabel Wordsworth couldn't prescribe it to people in New Brunswick. Um, and so that requires a lot of fancy footwork. Um, and the same, I believe, with the prescriptions. So if they got prescribed birth control, um, it required coming back to get it. Um, again, a lot better now that we have a doctor in Canada who will prescribe birth control. Um, do you have alternative funds for women who can't afford abortions? And how is Clinic 544 continuing to be funded? The um, I can say this because Allie works there and I don't. The clinic has very compassionate staff. I mean, you can say it too, but you can talk about yourself. So, you know. <laughs> the clinic has very compassionate staff who work, work really hard and explore every option. So they're NAF members, the members of the National Abortion Federation, and so we'll explore funding that way um, and do everything that they can. Um, and so they do that, but really it persists because of the family practice and then um, people who pay for their abortions. Yeah, I had a question more about the activism part mm -hmm. to get the clinic going, because you mentioned the rallies and stuff and having your classmates show up. Um, wondering what else the community can do or did to get the clinic going and what they can or do now to keep it going and keep the conversation going. A large part of it was conversation. A large part of it was the fact that people were willing to speak about it. Um, I mentioned the Frederick Community Feminist, but I can't say enough about how much these kids do. So this is a group of kids who wanted a space to talk about feminism outside of their high school. And so a year or two before the clinic closed, made that space for themselves. They were actually meeting in a gazebo in the winter and then finally found another feminist organization and let them inside. Um, but what, they're, what they do and what's really powerful is that they persistently create conversation 
Um, so when there was an there was 40 days of life and they were standing outside and um, myself and another RJB member with some of the feminists went and talked um, just like um, um, positive messages messages about abortion. Um, they decorated the Christmas tree outside of our provincial legislature with hangers. Um, they will do everything possible. And I think doing that and keeping that conversation going is important. What we found is that um, the, the promise that Premier Gallant made when he said we're going to repeal all, all things is so that is a, a conversation stopper. It stops people from doing things, and then it stops political will. And what we need on our side is political will more than anything else. Um, we can do all the lawsuits in the world, but the political will is really what seems to be driving these people. Um, and so that's a really important part. Even the letters, all of that stuff is so important. We filed some um, right to information requests. Um, I don't know if that's a thing here, but um, basically our government has to be somewhat accountable. So it doesn't cost us anything to, to file these requests. And what we found out from um, the information that we got was that the, the government really is monitoring our social media presence. So, um, you know, people sort of sometimes scoff at like armchair activism, but what we found is that it actually really does make a huge difference. Um, they're monitoring the discussions over social media, so Twitter, Facebook. Um, so, you know, that's one avenue that people not only in New Brunswick, but across the country and internationally can um, support us just by sort of interacting with our Facebook page or, you know, Twitter and those things. So um, that's another avenue that, you know, we're continuing to try to keep that conversation going and sort of stay present um, and be that, be the, mm -hmm. the, the fly buzzing in their ear. <laughs> I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about Henry Morgenthaler. So I was really honored to get to meet Dr. Morgenthaler before he passed away, and um, I went to some workshops at his clinic in Toronto. And what struck me, and he was he was very elderly when I met him, like in his eighties, um, but he was such a slight little man, like so tiny. He was such a just a tiny person, <laughs> but it just even at that age had such an energy like and you know I was a little bit starstruck I think but um just just has this presence that really was just just filled the room um and you know he uh sacrificed so much in his own life to make abortion legal in Canada um, was jailed and was doing, did an abortion on TV um, when abortion was still illegal in Canada um, and was arrested and jailed um, at least once, I think twice. And um, yeah, and sacrificed so much of, you know, of his personal life to fight for um, patients in Canada that needed abortion. So, I mean, he's just absolutely a, a hero and you know, he, he was a human, he wasn't perfect, but um, such an inspiration, and um, yeah, he's a Holocaust survivor, and uh, just such a generous person to, you know, he had no real connection to New Brunswick, but took so much slack for opening the clinic. Our uh, premier at the time said, Dr. Morgan Toller will open a clinic in this province over my dead body. Well, it didn't quite come to that, but uh, Dr. Martin Teller got his clinic open and then continued to basically fund it for New Brunswick patients needing abortions. So just, just, a, just a hero, an absolute hero. I think too, like he, um, so the way he got can abortions legal in Canada essentially was just publicly going in front of crowds with police officers there and saying, I performed, I performed, and I think there's a really famous clip of him going, I've performed 5,000 illegal abortions and getting arrested um, and doing it over death threats and death threats. And there's so many, so much of that. Um, he sued, he took the federal government to court. Um, and that's the Morgan, so when we say, like our word we made is the Morgan Teller decision, is the Morgan Teller versus, um, versus Canada, I guess. And then did it again in Nova Scotia uh, to make sure that clinic abortions could be funded and was suing the government of Nova Scotia up until the day he died. 
Uh, I'm sorry, I New Brunswick. And actually, that lawsuit was dropped uh, the day that the, the youth feminists had their first rally. So that was the first um, first day. Um, yeah, he was quite a force. I think it's worth saying that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of other doctors and feminists who um, kind of continue in that and were part of that too. We had what was called the abortion caravan in. Um, in Canada, where people drove a coffin across the entire country um, and left coat hangers in places and things like that. And so our rights, like the rights that in the States are not a very hard one and continue to be a hard fight. I have two questions. Um, what about Native women? Are they part of your system, or do they have their separate health? Um, so they, uh, they're part of the Medicare system, um, and, you know, we definitely see um, First Nations people in our clinic. Um, a lot of the First Nations communities in New Brunswick um, come from quite a Catholic upbringing, um, so that's one of the things um, that RJMB is working on um, because yes, RJMB is obviously a pro-choice organization, but it's also very important for us to meet um, people where they are. So um, we we want to continue to work with the First Nations communities, and even if that's just um, you know advocating for. Um, services that they want, you know, and not trying to convince them that they have to believe a certain thing. Yeah. Um, but we certainly do um, see First Nations communities at Clinic 554 and um, work hard to, to support them. We all feel very strongly in chosening reproductive justice because we're going to be and will be forever accountable to the First Nations community and to people of color. Um, in Canada, I think it was two weeks ago, um, a story came out of, about people in Saskatchewan, which is uh, closer to the west, uh, about forced sterilization um, and people forced to be sterilized after giving birth. And so we also recognize that where we're, what we're fighting for is uh, things that other people are miles away from and they want the right to give birth. My other question. Um, I know that uh, there's a lot of variation between the provinces in Canada. You know, I, there's kind of a federal standard, is my understanding, and then the provinces can pretty much, you know, provide the level of services they want. Just briefly, could you give me a sense of, of the, the rest of the country? I mean, is it is New Brunswick an outlier? Is it pretty typical, or you know? So, what what you're talking about is that our federal government gives money to the provinces and they're supposed to meet certain requirements. Right now, New Brunswick's not. Um, every other province has access to clinics except PEI Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia only doesn't because there's not one there, um, but it, the, there's supposed to be funding. Um, and so New Brunswick and PEI are kind of the last two. Um, we're also two of the poorest provinces, two of the provinces that rely on the most um, seasonal incomes, um, and two of the most Catholic and conservative provinces, and so we're very stuck with that. Um, in you would never be in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, any of those other cities, um, looking for a doctor to prescribe you birth control. You just would not go back to that doctor. In New Brunswick, we have in Fredericton, we have about ten thousand people without a family doctor, and so without that agency, um, and having no way of getting them, and so New Brunswick is particularly isolated. And one of our challenges is explaining this to people who live in places with multiple ways of access, with way more agency than we have. Um, people in New Brunswick don't have the same amount of agency with their doctors, um, and they there's just not a level of access. So. Thank you. Um, how many clinical visits did you have in your first year? We actually don't know. Do you mean clinical visits in terms of like abortion care? Um, so like family practice, all of that? It's constant. It's very, it's a very, very, very busy place. Um, also, one of the interests, so it's, it runs like a family practice where there's people in there all the time. Our doctor's a bit 
bit slow with appointments. <laughs> By that I mean um, the doc the doctor that works there as a family practice takes a lot of time with this patient, so that would lower the number. Um, what's also interesting though is a lot of times that I go in, there's people hanging out in the waiting room, um, and that says to me that we've created a safe space. Um, our waiting room, like this one, is a versatile space, I think. Um, but you often see um, Fredericton gender minorities meet there weekly. Um, uh, PFLAG meets there, things like that. But you also see patients who are in there just drawing and things like that. Um, so it's become a very cool space. Um, what sorts of security measures, if any, do you have in place at your clinic? I know, you know, here we have kind of a buzzer and a camera and we have bulletproof glass and all these things. Do you have a need for any of those things in your clinic? Yes, absolutely. So we have a very similar setup, um, bulletproof glass, buzzer, um, two doors to buzz in. We have cameras as well around the building um, and inside. And um, it was actually because Dr. Morgenthaler actually um, built the building, it's um, built in a like bomb-proof foundation. Um, so it's a super secure building. I should say too, like, just like this building, it's a NAF site. So it's a NAF accredited clinic, which means that they, you have to meet certain security standards. Um, and we were pretty fortunate we had a very thorough assessment when they reopened. Um, so that helps a lot too. So going off that, how do you find um, you're able to create that safe space where people can come in and you know hang out and draw and, and balance that with security? They're big bulletproof windows. <laughs> so there's a lot of light in the building. Um, the clinic manager is wonderful and works actually very, that's one of her biggest pride. The One of the things she takes the most pride in is making it a safe environment. Um, the artwork on the wall is, a lot of it's made by patients actually. Um, it's a bright space. People have are given a lot of agency to have comfort. So um, that I think adds a lot to it. I think a lot of it has to do with the way people are treated and that it's patient-centered and that it's openly feminist, openly gender celebratory um, and is very adamant about that. Since you've reopened, how, how have you drawn patients back into your clinic? Um, what's been, I'm, I'm sure word of mouth is probably one of the strongest ways, but can you kind of describe or, or talk, talk to that, speak to that, please? Um, I think, you know, it's sort of, uh, to quote another movie, if you build it, they will come. Um, I, you know, the demand was always there, so... Um, it certainly, there was a bit of time that patients would come in and say, I didn't know that you were, were still here or I thought you closed. Like, so there was um, definitely that information. You know, some people knew that the clinic had closed and didn't know that it had reopened. But um, through social media and word of mouth, um, doing radio interviews, um, the activism work with RJMB, um, RGMB has done a lot to um, discuss how to get an abortion in New Brunswick, and we do, like Hannah said, a lot of panels and um, a lot of work around that. Um, also, we were in Cosmo, which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the idea, I think, of a crowdfunded abortion clinic was pretty new to people. Um, I think that was probably the part that impressed my mom, um, <laughs> being in Gaza and Shadley, um, and things like that. The, what was interesting was that we increased services just before the province did um, and added that other hospital. And we met with them and said, people don't know how to get an abortion in this province, and a lot of them don't pay attention until they need to know. So what can we do about that? We had been contacted by the Kids Health Phone, which is like a national organization, and we have a new organization, one of our fantastic, fantastic allies who I adore, the um, Action, Can Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. Um, it both run volunteer lines. So Kids Helpline is a number that you can call to get staffed. Um, and Action Canada is a volunteer line where people can call and ask where to get an abortion anywhere in Canada. Um, the province was also supposed to set up a line. We originally, we have a, a dial-in nurse service. So if you pick up the phone and dial 811, you'll be connected with a registered nurse. They were referring people to the right to life. 
Um, the right to life doesn't employ medical staff at all, um, but or certified anything. Um, but they, that's where they were getting referred to, and that got fixed because it got a lot of media attention. Um, but we still needed another resource because we we called their head office, which is really in California, to try and fix that. But we have no way of knowing if it goes back, um, except for that every once in a while I call and say I'm pregnant. They think I get pregnant a lot. Um, <laughs> like someone involved in what I do, I should know more about birth control. Um, but we were, so we were dealt with this, and we said to the prov the province said, "Can you give us a list of every frontline organization that you that you think would give an abortion referral?" And I said, "That's a lot. <laughs> That's every frontline organization in New Brunswick." I, I could give you the yellow pages. <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said no. Um, and I said, but there is one organization I'd really like you to talk to. Can you please talk to Action Canada, Health and Right, or like Action Canada? And they said, like, maybe. And a year later, it hasn't happened. I contacted Action Canada and said, can you get in contact with them? They said, yes, absolutely. And they just didn't return the phone calls. Um, and so most of the information, actually, to get the publicly funded services in the hospital, most people call Clinic 554 to find out about them. Um, and everything else is people that typically uh, myself, Allie, or another one of our volunteers is trained. We also occasionally will get emails through our Facebook and stuff like that. What was terrifying was in the months that we didn't have a clinic, the months that they were both closed, we kept the Morgan Teller email open and got emails um, not necessarily even looking for abortions. Most of the emails we got were people who were um, who had had an abortion in the hospital and didn't feel safe going for follow-up and were worried about what their bodies were doing. And so in, we'd get these heartbreaking emails sent in the middle of the night, often in French, often with not high literacy, people asking, this is what my body's doing, this is how much I'm bleeding, is this normal? Um, and without a lot of resources, I would call Ali and she would translate, and I would call our one of our nurses and she would figure it out. And that was, for a really long time, kind of how it ran, because people felt so unsafe and so um, violated in hospitals that they wouldn't go back for follow-up. The province, we brought this up, and the province um, has refused to acknowledge that they need to provide follow-up care for abortion information. We have time for a couple more questions, if there are any. Um, I was wondering how you guys respond to all the protests and the protesters and not get discouraged by people leaving stuff like coat hangers everywhere and protesting outside of your clinic. Um, so this is a good question. It can be hard, and I think that one of the hard things within pro-choice activism that we sometimes don't do is leave space for people to feel uncomfortable. So leave space for the moment where you wonder whether or not abortion is the right thing. And talk about it until you realize how important it is. And I think a lot of us, um, luckily a lot of the people involved in RJB didn't grow up in a pro-choice household. And so we try to make space for those conversations. And it's hard um, and really uncomfortable what we just make sure that everyone has the space to Discuss, discuss what's uncomfortable and what's scary. Um, but we're always driven by patients and the stories like my grandmother who tells us that that's important. Um, recently, two weeks ago, I was at um, a presentation in, at the university given by one of the kids. She's now 18. She turned 18 on Monday. And she was discussing, um, at the same time that this happened, a bunch of the kids were suspended for asking for sexual assault policy, conservative province. Um, anyway, and she was talking, and as I was listening to her talk, I was able to pick out things that she picked up from other people in RJB or other people in this feminist community that's kind of grown since the clinic closed. So before, when we didn't really have a reason to talk about it or connect, we didn't. But now we do connect, and we do have space for conversations, hard ones and good ones and fun ones, too. Um, and so as I was listening, I noticed that the way she did trigger warnings was the same way as somebody else in RJB. And the jokes that she made were the same as uh, somebody in FGMG, in like the um, Frederick and Gender Minorities. And the things that she was saying were things that she's learned from her community and things that she came up on her own, having those spaces to have it. And so I think that for every one of those people, if that kid gets to do that presentation five times, my work's done. Like that's fine by me. I also try to remember that. Um, some of the people who are anti-choice are horrible. Some of them will do horrible things and be coercive and scary and they're doing it to control women. Some people don't understand and some people are scary. And I try to remember that I believe in feminism because I think it's loving and I think it's kind and that those people don't have that. 
We also have um, a great group of volunteers, um, not just our JMB members, but other members of the community. Um, so uh, when I worked at the Morgenthaler Clinic, I was also the volunteer coordinator. And um, because we had so many protesters um, right outside the clinic when we were doing abortion services, um, we would have uh, volunteer escorts. And so um, just getting to meet those people that would get up so early and stand outside when it was like minus 20 um, and just really focus on the patients. So instead of um, engaging with these protesters, would just really focus on uh, making the patients feel safer and um, comforted walking in and out of the clinic. Uh, it really, really um, did my heart good. And so um, since the clinic has changed, we don't see as many, um, knock on wood, <laughs> um, protests right outside the clinic, but we still have like an awesome group of volunteers basically on standby to just come at, at the drop of a hat and help out at the clinic if we need. Um, and I think... Two, um, I, so I actually met one of the people who lives next door. He's a, um, over the summer when we had people coming with the graphic pictures, um, he, we put signs out in front of our clinic and he came and took them. And so I asked for them back and he was like, those are yours? And didn't know that we owned the fence. He thought that he owned the fence. Someone had told him that and he didn't understand. He wasn't able to. Um, and so I said, yes. And he's like, oh, I'll go get those back. And I ended up getting them out of the garbage because he was so upset that he would have hurt me. And I, he's, I said, do you know what we are? And he was like, you're, he didn't know. And I said, do you know that that says clinic? And he said, no. Um, and so I try to remember him and that some of the victims are people who are really um, oppressive are of the people you don't know. And so I tried to make sure that I'm giving space to be empowering and that I'm be empowering other people and it almost always pays off, almost. <laughs> And there was one more question here. I was wondering about um, the access of services in French and in English. Is it the same, or do you see differences? I would love to say that it's the same because I, um, because I speak English and feel guilty about my French not being good enough, but I imagine that it's not. Um, it's harder to publish information in French and harder to reach French communities. A lot of them are really rural. Um, and up in colder areas. Um, that said, the French part of New Brunswick, so I, one of my best friends is a sex educator. She's also an RJMB. And when she goes to school in, can in the English part of the province, she says, um, you know, people will ask her, like, how do you put on a condom? And the teachers will get really upset. When she goes, <laughs> she went a few weeks ago to the north, and the teacher had had them make wooden dildos in shop class. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, I'm not able to offer services, and the services are sometimes harder to offer because you can't import people um, as easily. Um, people are resilient, and they're pretty cool, and some of those teachers are pretty kick-ass. All right, well, that will wrap it up. I want to thank both of you one more time for being here tonight. So I also want to thank all of you for being here and being part of our first ever live recording of Reproductive Left. Um, I do want to plug it one more time. So if you want to listen to Reproductive Left, it's on Community Radio, WERU, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, um, which is 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and you can also get it online at WERU. Org. And you can also find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, or on whatever podcast app you use. So thank you again. Have some chocolates, and we will draw the winner of Farad's Delicious Cake. <laughs> <laughs>